Turn with me then to our sermon text for today, which is Genesis chapter 36. Genesis chapter 36. I might also read the first verse of the next chapter. Genesis 36, starting in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimath bore Ruel, and Aholibama bore Jewish, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zebeon, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Korah, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatem, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's sons, son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Mahanath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zebeon, Aya, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zebeon, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, and Aholabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, 
Ithran, and Karan. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaafan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zebeon, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bilah, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. Bilah died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Job, Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masreka reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rebaioth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholabama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Imram. Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Dear Father, we thank you for your word which is delivered to us, which has been given to us this day, that we might possess it and hear it and learn from it. We pray that you would guide the preaching of your word to our edification and our growth in grace, uh, to uh, conviction and growth in grace and holiness and comfort. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not an easy passage. Uh, Its meaning and relevance is not immediately clear, is what I mean by that. Well, actually more than that. Even its organization can seem a little confusing. I don't know if you noticed, but we went over Esau's sons like three times in this genealogy. It's a little repetitive. Uh, At first it might seem odd. Why is it here? But that might be explainable. We have a lot of genealogies in Genesis. It's telling the beginnings of things. And so we have, um, you know, Ishmael's sons as well. What became of him? That's often what we wonder. We read a story, what became of him? That's why some of those movies have a little epilogue at the end. This is what happened to the person after the story, right? Well, here's what happened to Esau. In fact, that's what we have at the beginning. These are the generations of Esau. That phrase means, like, this is what became of his family. This is uh, the outcome uh, of him. And we have that in this genealogy. But the organization seems confusing at first. Uh, Like I said, verse 1 marks this as one of the basic sections of Genesis. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Uh, These are the generations. The word for generations is toledot. So sometimes people refer to this as a toledot. And Genesis has 10 toledots. It's divided up very evenly there into 10 of these sections. And... 
each of them, these are the generations of. Each section tells of what resulted from the figure just described, and usually tells the story of that person's children. Uh, and so, for example, life of Jacob is in these are the generations of Isaac, and Abraham's story is in these are the generations of Terah. You know, it's, it's what, what happened to his family. And, in fact, the first one was these are the generations of the heaven and the earth, because it just recounted the creation of the heavens and the earth, and then tells the story of Adam and Eve, and, and focuses more on, on the, uh, what came of it uh, in Adam and Eve. And so this is a section of, of Genesis, uh, purposefully marked as such. It is unique, though, that in verse 9, you have the phrase almost repeated. Again, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Why do we have that phrase show up kind of twice, kind of repeated? Well, verses 1 through 8 are the history of Esau's family in Canaan. Verses 9 through 43 are the history of Esau's family in the hill country of Seir. Um, verse 1 of the next chapter kind of picks up from verse 8. You know, Esau's gone off to this other land. Well, then let's go back to Jacob. He remained in the land. And that's why I read the first verse of the next chapter, because technically it would be part of this Toledot. It's verse 2 of the next chapter that begins, these are the generations of Jacob, and tells the story of Joseph uh, and his other brothers. We have a contrast here between uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob began in Canaan, but then he sets off to the hill country of Seir. Let me give you a little more detailed outline, just before we dig into what we can learn from this. First five verses are Esau's wives and sons in Canaan. Verses six through eight are his move then from Canaan to Seir. Verses nine through 14 are Esau's sons and grandsons now in the land of Eden. Edom, not Eden, Edom. That's uh, what it's going to be called, the hill country of Seir. His sons and grandsons. But then verses 15 through 19 describe more the politics of this nation, the chiefs of the Edomites, who happen to be a lot of the same people just described. Uh, the grandsons through his first two sons, the grandsons from Eliphaz and Ruel, and then his sons from his third wife, who had three. So sons and some of his grandsons, they become the chiefs of the Edomites. Then verses 20 through 30 tell of another family, the sons of Seir, the Horite, the guy that the place is named after, and the Horites being the indigenous people of that land, the, the native inhabitants who are already there when Esau moved there. Then verses 31 through 39 tell of the kings of Edom. So we have the chiefs of Edom, but then in time they have kings that rule in Edom before there are any kings among the Israelites. And then finally, verses 40 through 43, it seems like it's describing chiefs again, but by the reference to their dwelling places, these seem to be more chiefdoms, districts, that the chiefs would have reigned over that had these names, some of whom were named after significant figures that we just heard about and, and some not. And so we have then, the repetition makes sense when you realize it's, it's describing his sons, his sons and grandsons, the chieftains of the Edomites, the people of the Horites, the kings of Edom, the districts of Edom, and we have this all laid out, therefore, in this chapter. And then, of course, ending with the first verse of 31, this contrast with Jacob, who stayed in Canaan. Then the question is, why is this recounted for us? 
how is this profitable to the reader? We know that all Scripture is profitable, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, as Paul teaches in his letter to Timothy. Well, this chapter tells you of various fulfillments of God's promises. You have to understand in the context of Genesis. We're seeing now in the history some promises that God had spoken earlier being fulfilled. It also tells of God's goodness even to the unbelieving, even to the ungrateful, that God has given Esau this uh, earthly heritage, this family, this nation, that he is generous to them beyond their deserving. It's also a warning describing a nation that fell away from God and became strangers to the covenants of promise. It's also a helpful guide to later biblical accounts about the Edomites. So later when you hear a reference to the Edomites, you have a better idea of who we're talking about. It links it together with the later history. So the way I want to talk about it, basically in the order of the text, first describing the move, then describing the nation, then describing their victory, and then describing their kings. So first, the move. The move from Canaan to Seir. This move was good for Jacob, and it was not good for Esau. Uh, Providentially, it was good for Jacob that Esau left on peaceable terms. He didn't fight him out for the land. He left. He made room for Jacob. There wasn't room because both of them had been blessed so much with their livestock that Esau left. And so that was a good provision for Jacob, that God gave him peace with Esau, and and Esau left. But Esau's departure was not good for Esau. It was, uh, if you will, the culmination of his apostasy, that uh, he left the promised land, because he had left the promises already. He had despised his birthright. He had traded it away for a bowl of lentils. He had married Canaanites, Uh, The ones that he was supposed to later, his descendants, possess their land. Uh, He was careless about the promises of God and and married Canaanites that proved a grief to his parents. He also then lost the blessing when the time came for Isaac to bless his children. Uh, Providentially, God saw to it that the blessing was given to Jacob, who had prized the blessing, who certainly did wrong in deceiving his father, but nevertheless prized and, and believed in the promises. Esau experienced God's generosity, but he was worldly and profane. He departed from the promised land, not temporarily like Jacob, but permanently to find his own possession. The patriarchs knew that they were looking to the inheritance God would provide. They did not return to find a possession in their old homeland or a different land. If they went out, it was temporarily as sojourners to return, to look to the promises of God, even looking to the city that was to come. They sojourned in hope, looking ultimately to the heavenly inheritance to come. But Esau departed, leaving Jacob to be the heir of their father's household and of the covenant promises. This is a pattern we've seen in Genesis. He is like Cain, like Ham, like Ishmael. Esau, like them, was raised in a godly family. He was born as an heir of the covenant, and yet he fell away from it and despised his birthright. From the perspective of God's sovereignty, this was because God loved Jacob, 
but hated and passed over Esau, even before they were born. That's Paul's point in Romans 9, that salvation and blessing is of God's grace and is given sovereignly by God. From the perspective of human responsibility, Esau's departure was because, and and his apostasy was because Esau did not receive the promises by faith. He showed contempt for them. And that's a warning to all children of the covenant to not be ungrateful and profane like Esau. Really, it's a warning to all members of the covenant to not be profane and unholy like Esau. Do not despise the Lord Jesus in whom all the promises find their yes and amen. Uh, Do not take this for granted and treat it like a common, cheap thing. But believe in him. Follow him. uh, Leaving all that you might have Christ. Remember the warning of Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is a warning. A warning from the life of Esau. And so Esau moved away, and he kind of exits the redemptive history, although we'll come back to him time and again in the course of Israel's history. But we find, secondly, that Esau becomes a nation in verses 9 through 19. Having moved to Seir, he multiplies, and in fact, his sons and grandsons become chiefs because they become a a people. In fact, even by the time he meets with Jacob, he has 400 warriors mounted on horseback that he had become powerful already and he would continue to grow into a nation. This was a fulfillment of God's promise and prophecy that there there were two nations in Rebekah's womb. Do you remember that? Two nations are in your womb, God told Rebekah. And in this genealogy, we find fulfillment to that, that Esau, as later Jacob will also, that Esau became a nation. It's also a foretaste of Israel's future. Just as Esau here is multiplying into a nation, how much more will Israel multiply into a nation as well? From the three wives, Esau had five sons, and one of those sons had, sorry, he had five sons. One son from one wife, one son from another wife, three sons from uh, his third wife, Aholibamah or at least the third one listed. Esau's grandsons through Eliphaz and Ruel and his three sons from his wife Aholibamah became chiefs of the Edomites. And they lived in the hill country of Seir, which is on the southern and southeastern side of the Dead Sea. Uh, Kind of a, a large region, a mountainous region to the south and southeastern side of, or maybe I should do this reverse, southeastern side of the Dead Sea. And very picturesque area, rocky, mountainous area. It was an important area around trade routes, and that's how, in time, Edom would become rich, not because of the abundance of farmable land, not so much that, but rather because it was a trade route, and they uh, would become wealthy in that way. It was also uh, a secure area, being mountainous. Now, if God had fulfilled his promise to make Esau a nation, he would also be faithful to make Israel a nation. The establishment of Esau, or Edom, as a sovereign nation 
prefigures the increase in establishment of Israel as a nation. As they saw Edom, they were to remember God's faithfulness and have greater confidence in God's promise to them. If he showed such faithfulness to unbelieving Esau, how much more would he care for his children? The Israelites were also to never forget that the Edomites were their brothers. Their twin brothers, in fact. Deuteronomy 23.7, again, same author as Genesis, but now in the book of Deuteronomy, he told the Israelites, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You know, hundreds of years later, they were still regarding them as, as their brother. They had come from the same origin. Esau, or Israel and Edom were supposed to treat each other as brothers. In the book of Obadiah, perhaps a thousand years or more after Jacob and Esau were born, uh, it describes the violence Edom did to Israel as the violence done to your brother Jacob. That made the violence all the more treacherous, a betrayal, stab in the back by their own brother. They were brother nations, twin nations, which would also remind Israel their dependence upon God's grace, that Israel was set apart not by their, their birth or by all the things that they would have in common with Edom, but rather by God's election and covenant, that that's what made them special. They had shared the same origin in the womb of Rebekah, but they met with different destinies because God loved Jacob and hated Esau, and they had gone different ways. Incidentally, we also learn not only the origin of the Edomites, but also of the Amalekites. Amalek was one of the grandsons of Edom, of Esau. Edom is Esau. That's made clean here. Grandson, Amalek. Uh, he was the founder of the Amalekites. Um, and I think we can draw that conclusion that Amalek here is the same that later becomes the Amalekites. First of all, because he became a chief, so he was a leading man. He wasn't just, you know, Joe on the street. He was a chief, a leading man named Amalek. Also, the status of his mother as a concubine might have contributed to his branching off later as a separate people. Uh, Thirdly, Genesis is the book of beginnings and tells the origin not just of Israel, but of many of the surrounding nations around them. So it makes sense to describe also the origin of the Amalekites here. Fourthly, the geography fits well, since the Amalekites lived primarily in the southern deserts not far from Edom. There is an earlier reference to the country of the Amalekites in chapter 14, but that's to the country, identifying it to Moses' audience, not necessarily saying the Edomites were there. Now, the Amalekites, sorry, Amalekites. If I said Edomites, I meant Amalekites. Amalekites were the first nation to encounter Israel. When they came out of the Exodus, they come out of the Exodus, they come out of Egypt, and they meet with a battle right away. The Amalekites attack them. And that's when Moses has to hold his hands up on high and, and uh, his assistants keep his hands hold, held up. Bitter war was waged against the Amalekites throughout generations. Uh, Saul and David uh, fought the Amalekites and defeated them. Uh, the remnants of the Amalekites fled to their cousins, the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. And that's where the Simeonites destroyed that remnant during the days of Hezekiah. There's even a possible reference to the Amalekites with Haman the Agagite, uh, possibly a connection to the king Agag of the Amalekites many, many years later. So, origin of the Edomites, and even another nation on top of that, the Amalekites. What can we learn from this nation building? 
Uh, as God was faithful to make Esau and Jacob into nations, he will be faithful today to multiply his church. Even though the kingdom begins like a mustard seed, it will become a great tree in which all the nations shall take shelter. Jacob has become a great company of nations, the church of Jesus Christ, a holy nation united by faith in Christ. Secondly, learn that God's people is not chosen for their natural preeminence. Esau was the older child. Uh, he was, was stronger in some ways, that he was the, also the nation that came to prominence first, became independent right away, obtained their possession before Israel. Uh, he was older in several respects as a person, as a nation, but God set his love on Jacob. Likewise, do not rest upon your works, your achievements, your earthly status before God, but rather humbly rest upon the grace of God and give thanks to him for your mercy, being ready to write it off all as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Thirdly, look also at how the actions of parents can influence the destinies of generations of their descendants. Of course, God can turn the hearts of pagans from the futile ways of their forefathers. That is possible, and we see that more and more in the New Covenant. But in general, for centuries, the Edomites and the Amalekites remained separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise, and violently hostile to the people of God. The actions of Esau resounded through his descendants for generations. Perhaps not as dramatically, but your actions will influence your descendants for good or ill. Uh, it is something for us to take heed upon as we see these vast centuries unfolded before us in Genesis to remember the big picture of the consequences of our actions. Thirdly, let's look at the victory, verses 20 through 30. Inserted here is the genealogy or a list of the Horites, uh, people not from Abraham and other people that just were already living there in Seir. And here we find the fulfillment of the promise of victory in war. Isaac had told Esau that he would live by his sword, that he would obtain a dwelling place and he would live by the sword. And so he takes the possession of Seir and defeats the Horites. This is also a foretaste of Israel's later conquest of their possession in Canaan. When Esau and his household left Canaan, they went to the hill country of Seir, and they conquered it and obtained it as a possession. This genealogy records the genealogy of the Horite leaders. They lived there in Seir, who was their father or forefather. His sons were their chiefs. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, Moses recounts how the people of Esau had taken this land. He says, The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Edah the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Later on in verse 22, he says, The Lord destroyed the Rephaim before the Ammonites, as he did for the people of Esau who live in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. So that's why the Horites are mentioned here, as this is the people, kind of like the Canaanites in Canaan, you had the Horites in Seir, and yet uh, Esau proved victorious. We also learn that there might have been some complicated politics involved, because 
From this genealogy, we find one of Esau's wives, Aholibama, was the daughter of a man who was not only a Hivite, but also a Horite chief. Perhaps he married into their nobility and then got involved in a civil war and ended up coming out on top. That sort of thing happens. We also learn that the concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, whose name was Timnah, was the sister of one of their chiefs, Lotan. And so there's connections here between the two groups. Now what can we learn from this? Esau's conquest of Seir prefigured Israel's conquest of Canaan. If God blessed Esau in such a way, surely he would do at least as much for Israel. Esau came first. He reached possession and victory uh, first. He was the older nation. Nevertheless, Edom would in time serve his younger brother and become subject to Israel. The wicked may prosper for a time, but their wealth is laid up for the righteous. As Proverbs 13 says, though sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Or Ecclesiastes 2, to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. Uh, the future belongs to the kingdom of God, not to those who spring up like grass, who prosper for a time, only to be cut down. The prosperity of the wicked is like a bubble, which uh, shines for a time, but is not permanent. Whether through God's acts of judgment or through conversion, the glory of the nations will eventually serve the kingdom of Jesus Christ. As Revelation says in 20, chapter 21, speaking of the city of God, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Christ has received all the nations as his inheritance. We see even that prefigured in Edom's initial prosperity, only later be conquered by, East, by Israel, which springs up as the greater nation in time. Also, when Israel read this, they were to be reminded to respect the sovereignty of Edom as another nation and their own right to their own territory. In Numbers 20, it tells of how Moses asked the king of Edom to let Israel pass through their land, promising not to take anything, even to pay for the water that they drank. The king, though, refused passage, and he came out with a large army to defend their border. And so Israel took the hint and took the long route around Edom. Deuteronomy 2 recounts the same event and records the Lord's words to the Israelites regarding their brothers, the people of Esau. So be very careful. Do not contend with them. For I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. In other words, respect the territory and property of Edom. Respect their border. Be careful to avoid conflict with them. Get their permission. Uh, be fair and just toward them. And that lesson is still relevant today. National sovereignty of each nation should be respected. Each country should seek to be fair and just with other nations, to, to not pick a fight with them as much as it is possible and depends upon you as accords with justice. You know, seek to be at peace with other nations, resorting to war only with just cause. Uh, these are lessons that are still quite applicable to nations today. Fourthly, let's look at the kings. The kings of Edom, before Israel had kings, I'm not going to go through each individually, but we have them listed, verses 31 through 43, or 31 through 39. 
And this is also a fulfillment of a promise. You see that one coming? There was a promise of kings, kings from Abraham. There was a promise to Abraham that kings would arise from him. And Esau is a child of Abraham. Already we see, before there were any kings in Israel, already kings coming from the line of Abraham. God had told Abraham, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Now Esau had forfeited the covenant. The promise nevertheless was fulfilled here first. And it even points out explicitly that this was before any king reigned over the Israelites. Some people think that maybe that's a sign that this has been inserted into Genesis later during the days of King David, once Israel had kings. Uh, that's, that's possible, but it's not necessary because several times in Genesis itself, there's already prophecies that kings will arise, not only from Abraham, but also from Jacob and eventually from Judah, we find at the end of the book. So uh, even in the days of Moses, they knew that there would be kings who would rise up from Israel, but there were already kings in Edom, because like when Moses came to Edom, they spoke to the king of Edom. There were already kings in that land at that time. Perhaps this last king, Hadar, might have been that very king that they spoke to when Moses came uh, with the people of Israel. Because it doesn't recount his death. When First Chronicles recounts it, it does recount his death. Um, the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 also speaks to the chiefs of the Edomites, and that they also had a king at the same time. Perhaps the kings were elected, uh, not uh, hereditary, because um, the way it describes them being each from different places. But as with their earlier possession of their land, the e- Edom had kings first before Israel. They sprung up like grass, or they sprung up like weeds. They sprung up quickly, and they prospered while Israel was in subjection in Egypt, being humiliated through trials. And even before that, they were in Canaan without an inheritance, living on borrowed land, while the Edomites began to have their own possessions, prosper as a nation, even have kings. But while they sprung up like grass, they would in time wither and become subject to King David, when Israel would have a king and would defeat them with great slaughter and obtain possession of their land. So again, this passage would remind the Israelites that if God had been faithful to raise up kings for the Edomites, how much more would he be faithful to raise up kings for Israel from the offspring of Jacob? The king of Israel would become an instrument of God's blessing to protect them, to give them rest in the land. Especially after the monarchy fell, the prophets intensified this hope that a particular king would arise who would bring blessing to God's people to fulfill all the covenant promises, to extend this kingdom to the end of the earth. And that king came, and his name is Jesus. And we have this king now who brings these promises to pass, who reigns over the kingdom of his father David, which kingdom is the kingdom of God and extends more and more to the ends of the earth. In principle, it's already there. And so in that hope, Jacob remained in the land. And that's, in conclusion, what we find in the last verse, or the first verse of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Esau went off to win a kingdom by the sword. He obtained possession for his people in the mountains, but Jacob stayed with the tents in the land of Canaan. He sojourned by faith and hope. He patiently waited and endured 
looking to the Lord to provide. So do not be like Esau, who despised the promises and left, but be like Jacob, who always prized the promises of God, and through trials and difficulties, he endured by faith. Be like Jacob, because God is good and faithful. Even if the wicked seem to prosper, even if immorality and impiety seem to prevail in high places, know that this is temporary, and that those who wait upon the Lord shall be exalted in time. So be faithful and to follow him, now, enduring in your callings, in your place in life. If he is kind even to rebels, how much more will he care for his children, for those who possess the promises by faith? God's kingdom shall triumph in history, and it shall be the eternal inheritance of those who have believed in Christ to the end. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the hope that you give us in your covenant that you have sworn and have kept and have sealed by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and raising him from the dead, that he might even now lead us as our King and our Savior. We pray that you would continue to build us in, in this hope, build us up in this hope, in this faith, that through faith and patience we might inherit the promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.